Hello, welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. We often think of education starting when children first step into a classroom. Picture the classic photo of a small child smothered by an oversized backpack on the way to their new school. But as I'm sure any new parents will be keen to point out, children do actually exist before the age of four. What happens in the preschool years, especially between the ages of about two and four, is incredibly important in terms of how children fit into school life, both academically and socially. So important, in fact, that a specific target within Sustainable Development Goal 4 is given over to, in the words of the UN, ensuring that all girls and boys have access to quality early childhood development, care and pre-primary education so that they are ready for primary education. Interestingly though, relatively little time and research is dedicated to making sure that children are school ready. This lack of attention has a particular impact on young children with disabilities and their families. The sooner very young children are identified as having certain difficulties, the sooner they, and their parents or carers, can start receiving support. This support can be life-changing, as it helps to lay more solid foundations on which the child's education can be built. Caring for any young child is difficult. Throw into the mix a situation where the child has developmental difficulties, parents that are short on both time and money, and a lack of support from the community, and real problems start to occur. Something that can really help in cases such as this is an effective partnership between people working in different sectors. For example, a preschool teacher can work with community members and parents, while also liaising with school support services. Simple communications such as this can dramatically increase the likelihood of a child receiving the earliest support they need. Assistive technology too has a huge potential to help in this area. How it is used and who has access to it is a different story. Here to talk to me about these issues is Dr. Paul Lynch, a senior lecturer in inclusive education at the University of Glasgow. Before becoming a lecturer, Paul conducted research for Sightsavers into the educational and social inclusion of children with disabilities in sub-Saharan Africa. He's conducted research into the lives of children with vision impairment and has developed a strong interest in the cultures, beliefs and histories of children and young people with disabilities in that region. Recently, Paul has been leading research into early childhood education and disability in Malawi. He's also carried out work in Ghana, specifically aimed at working closely with the Ministry of Education and Science to develop an ICT and SEN policy, as well as an inclusive education strategy. Paul is a full member of the Disability and Society Editorial Board and on the British Journal of Visual Impairment. He's also an editor for the International Journal of Educational Development. Paul Lynch, welcome to the Goal 4 podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me, Richard. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Paul, you're you're interested in early year school readiness. What does this mean? What is this exactly? So, early years and school readiness is, is quite a contentious um, concept. The whole idea of getting children ready for school can be quite uh, a traumatic event for for children and parents and families. It's a time when children make that transition into a into a real um, learning context where they are more or less left to uh, they spend uh, time away from their family and they are expected to to be more independent to be able to feed themselves, be able to to go to the toilet, 
be able to do very simple tasks, problem solving. And one of the difficulties over, over the years is that it's been very much based on what we call a maturational approach. So we expect children to develop pretty much the same in terms of milestones. So by the age of four and a half, children should be ready, school ready in terms of being able to feed themselves, be ready to, to start learning numbers, uh, the reading the alphabet, saying the alphabet, doing nursery rhymes, etc. But this isn't the case for all children. And I think it's worth pointing out that globally, uh, there are about 250 million children um, under the age of five who are not really reaching their developmental potential. Okay, so that means that the, they wouldn't necessarily be school ready. Um, and this has implications for families and schools alike. And when we think further along the path, you know, in terms of their development, this could have implications uh, in society, uh, both economically, uh, psychologically, and also within health out outcomes. But if we sort of dig deeper into those 250 million children, we sort of know that there's around 55, 54, 55 million children who have a developmental disability. So, I mean, the main message is, is that we do need to identify children as early as possible uh, to reduce the sort of social behaviour and educational difficulties that, that, that can arise. And so we need to, to do that to enable them to, to flourish, learn, and really be empowered to participate in their, in their communities. So when we talk about school readiness, um, UNICEF came up with a really good model in terms of not just children being school ready, but schools being ready for children of all uh, abilities. Parents knowing what is expected from them in terms of getting children ready for school, so that it's not a matter of a few weeks before school starts, you know, where, uh, when children start school that they are told in a letter or they get a message that they need to prepare their child's school bag, they need these books or they need this material, etc. But it happens a long time before, at least a year before the child starts. So everybody it knows what, what they need to do and how they need to, to work together. So very often it's a sort of intersectioning. So you've got the parents, the children, the school, but also the community. And that sort of overlapping is, is what we often call the school readiness. Yeah, it's so interesting to talk about the parents in that respect, um, because they're the obviously the ones with the children at home before they go to school. For, as you say, if for a year before a child goes to school, how much of a difference can that make? If a parent is, is on the ball, is helping them at home in various ways to get ready for school, maybe maybe academically or socially, how important is that? Yeah, uh, incredibly important. And, and that sort of links to a, a study um, I'm involved in at the moment, uh, in a three-country study that's, that's looking at parental support. Uh, so it's a three-country study in Nepal, Bangladesh, and Tanzania. Um, so this is a, a continuation study of a cohort study which started from birth. And a lot of these children now are just on the cusp of going into, into preschool. 
And so the, the design of this research is to look at how can we support parents in, in ensuring that they know what's required of them and their child when, when they start school. And quite rightly, we're sort of looking about a year before the process and we've designed this training program where we work with, um, we've trained uh, a faci two facilitators, a teacher and a champion mother or parent to work together to deliver a set of modules. Uh, these modules are about, one of them is sort of getting to know my child, getting to know their strengths, their difficulties, what they like doing and what they don't like doing. And also things about how they go to the toilet, what, how they feed themselves. It's also looking around about how to, to manage challenging behavior, how to work with teachers who may find it difficult to work with a child who has challenging behavior. And that's often a difficulty for teachers who are not trained in inclusive education. So we don't want a, a sort of impasse where a child, um, a parent leaves the child at school and within two or three days, the child is finding it very, very difficult to settle. And so it sort of comes out in their behavior. They may run out a lot from the school and they need to find them. They may hit other children. They may, they may cry a lot, et cetera. So rather than have this um, impasse where the teacher will say, well, we can't cope with that child. So I think it's really important that parents find out about what's expected of them and to know what happens in the classroom, um, because often they're not allowed into the classroom. Um, so it's, it's a way of uh, educating parents about the importance of going to class, going to school, but because in many respects, uh, pre-education is not formalized. Um, parents don't have to send their children to these schools. But for children with disabilities, this can be a, a really good opportunity to support their transition. And these training sessions will hopefully give them the, uh, the confidence to reduce the sort of stigma around disability, and to know that there are other parents who have children with disabilities, but also parents of children with non-disabled children who are really supportive of that transition. So it's still early days. It's, uh, it, uh, we're piloting the, the, the um, program at the moment in the three countries. So uh, I look forward to, to, to sharing those results. When they're yeah, out. it sounds a fascinating study. And interestingly, just to come back to the point that you, you talk about children coming into a classroom that may not have the best behavioral standards or may or may struggle to be in a classroom for various reasons. This is often actually cited as one of the reasons that inclusive education sometimes doesn't work, either by teachers who can't cope with so many different children in a classroom or by parents um, interestingly, by parents of children that don't have disabilities worried that their child doesn't get the attention they need because their teacher is always focusing on the, the disruptive child or the child with disabilities and so on and so on. You hear, this, you hear this argument a lot. So it just goes to show how important it is that those children can enter the classroom with those classroom-ready skills, with that, yeah, with that school readiness, as it's called. But you, you talk about supporting the parents to do this. How best can that happen? Who who needs to lead that? You mentioned a few key people there, and you know mothers, and but 
you know, whose who's resp responsibility is this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, uh, caregivers find it really challenging to, to, to think about that transitional point to school. <clears throat> Often, uh, just as an aside, we ask them about their own time at school and their own experiences and how that was for them. And for, some, for a lot of them, they talked about this uh, sense of tension and uh, very a very nervous time for them. You know, it's, it's going out into the big world, isn't it? Um, so it's quite a scary thing. But I think I mentioned teachers, and I think it's really important that preschool teachers particularly find out in advance. And, and this is where um, it gets a bit tricky. Um, I talked about sort of prevalence of disability and, and the need to know how many children there are in communities with disabilities. And there are some useful tools like the Washington Group questions, which have been used more extensively across countries, which ask very very good questions about uh, children's function or functionality. And I think it's in, it's that sort of information that needs to be shared, okay? It needs to come out um, pretty early. Um, so if parents are concerned about their child, they often go to a clinic or they talk to a doctor or they talk to, to, an, to, to a family member. But it's, it's those people, it's what they do with that information is critical. And as the child is getting ready for school, we need to bring that information into one place. I think it as uh, an important, it doesn't have to be a teacher. It could be a social work or social welfare, protect, a child protection officer, could be a clinician or a health surveillance assistant. It's someone who takes an interest in the family who can, who can um, document anything that's of importance that would help a teacher better understand the needs of that child when they enter the classroom. So it's it's a multiple stakeholder approach. And 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 it I'll, I'll sort of mention it when we talk about the technology is that there's this sort of team around the child approach. Like there are different key players who can contribute to that development of a profile of the child. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's bringing those players in at the right time um, but it takes time and that's why I think it's it's time that is really of the essence so I really do stress the sort of year at least a year before the child is starting school to get that process in, in get that going as quick as, as as quickly as possible but hopefully it will help teachers to to learn about the child their needs etc uh, and be able to respond to them uh, accordingly yeah, it seems it seems like it would help all parties having that having that time, and also that information. You mentioned the importance of quality data and information on children's needs and how children function. I'm I'm glad you brought up the Washington Group questions because we're going to be doing a whole separate episode on this. So look out for that. Um, but just very briefly, for people that haven't heard of it, that is a set of questions, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a set of questions that focuses on child functioning rather than um, sort of diagnosis or a labeling of the child. So a question, for instance, rather than saying, does your child have a visual impairment or is your child blind? It might say, does your child have difficulty reading text or does your child have difficulty walking up stairs or something like that? Is that correct? It is. And it's also sort of compared with 
children you know so it, it the, there's always a benchmark because parents are able to that's often the case that when parents get concerned is when they've had other children who've who've achieved certain milestones and and the child hasn't that's where they get concerned is the compar the comparison with other children of the same age so that's where the washington group is really the the, the child functioning mod module is particularly good but it's yeah. so important it seems that all of these different people are working together in terms of the teachers, the teaching assistants, people that work in education technology. And I want to come back to that in a moment, but it brings me really nicely onto a question about the work you do on multi-sectoral partnerships. That is all about bringing together people within the education system that maybe might not work together traditionally, but it, it can involve carers and parents. And like you said, earlier about um, teachers, teaching assistants, and it's about exchanging information and exchanging of practice. And um, yeah, can you can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, well, it's sort of grown out of um, over a number of years uh, doing quite a lot of research in Malawi. So I did quite a lot of research um, on vision impairment. Uh, I did quite a uh, a number of studies for sight savers uh, commissioned research on the educational inclusion of children with uh, visual impairments in Malawi. And it was just interesting to uh, look at how, uh, so many of the children had, had received some sort of medical diagnosis in terms of their visual impairment, whether they had a particular eye tropical eye disease or they had specific low vision problems etc but what I found was that they were given a diagnosis and then on the report was this child should go to a special school or they should be given glasses or they should be educated or something like that and then that report sort of went in a file somewhere so teachers didn't necessarily see that report but what concerned me was the the lack of dialogue between the eye specialists and the educators or the child's teachers and this was becoming more and more of an issue for me and as I moved into doing more work around early childhood education I felt this was even a greater problem because as I mentioned earlier we really do need to catch any to catch the children quite early uh, in terms of intervention uh, whether it's uh, for, for vision impairment or hearing impairment or uh, motor disability etc so sort of recent research um, a, a british academy um, research that that um, i've just now moved towards the dissemination is looking at we just looked at one um, district uh, in in malawi and the purpose was to to bring those the main sectors together who are responsible for a child um, and so you know we're just hoping that um, we've got a dissemination conference and, and in March where we're going to to bring this up to policymakers uh, in health for bringing the three sectors together and we're going to talk about the research that we have and and have a, an open forum to, to look at ways of developing multi-sectoral approaches to supporting the educational inclusion of children with disabilities. Yeah, it's so important. And as you mentioned, it that dialogue at the point of early childhood education in particular, 
with the issues you've mentioned already with with all these people in different sectors actually working together yeah. passing that information between one another is a uh, is crucial this i mean this the answer to this question is probably going to completely depend where in the world you are or even what village you're in in, in a certain mm-hmm. country but but who do you find is important when you're trying to bring all these people together is it someone that works in the ministry of education or is it someone that works for an ngo who just know happens to know lots of people in different sectors does it does it differ in different areas or is there is there sometimes one kind of usual suspect that knows everybody a bit of a fixer if you like in that world and can can call on people can bring people together and get them all in the same room yeah that's <laughs> that is really good yeah um from my experience uh in malawi i i've got to know a lot of uh different uh stakeholders uh really influential people but interestingly they still sort of work within their own sector um so the director of education in in special education wouldn't have know the right people in the ministry but what I think is re- really um, powerful is that they they have district. So most of the countries that I've worked in, they, that they have a decentralization of education. So at district or county level, you have a sort of mirroring of district health or county health officers. So that's a really important to know that that they that there are these these sort of um, sub county district level stakeholders who have an immense knowledge of schools, of, of clinics, of um, uh, community centres, et cetera. And it sort of brings me on to, we often talk about mapping, mapping, doing new GPS, uh, j- just trying to map out those where those important centres are, community centres where parents go to. But... It takes time, but I think it's an incredibly important thing to do is that we map out the terrain and just see where those centres, those hubs are. Where do parents go to when they need help? Do they go to a dispensary? Do they go to a local clinic? And that's the place where we can find out more information about the child, about the parents, about what's happening. So it could be the local primary school. It could be the preschool. It could be an ECD centre where we can find opportunities, windows of opportunities, where we can meet the parents and children with disabilities that are not being tracked, that we can find and and be able to follow uh, subsequently once we've got some essential information. One ministry that we often leave out is the Ministry of Statistics or um, the ones that uh, are responsible for doing household surveys and census and it's quite useful because it's often seen as a neutral ministry because sometimes there's sort of different political agendas between ministries if we have a neutral uh, ministry like uh, where they the ministry of uh, statistical uh, information or uh, um, census we do need that in the first place. We need somewhere to hold that information. And I think we often forget about that, is that we, we can work with these people because they, they have the, the knowledge, the skills, the technical skills to, to collect this information. So I think, it's, I think it's important to work with this ministry as well. They have the knowledge, important to, to bring them in and use it. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And it's, it's very much in line with some work I'm doing at the minute with with UNESCO. So I'm super, super interested to hear about it. 
So from multi-sectoral to one key sector, you mentioned it earlier. Um, I want to come back and talk about education technology. I noticed you did a recent review on EdTech for children with disabilities for the World Bank. Why is EdTech so important in the context of disability? Yeah, that, that, that was a really um, interesting piece of work. It was a systematic literature review uh, that I did with a colleague, uh, Professor Nidhi Single and uh, Dr. Gil Francis at um, Durham University. Um, <clears throat> it, it sort of raised a lot of questions about the use of educational technology in schools. Uh, and more specifically, what do we know? What's the evidence or the efficacy of using edtech with children with disabilities? Just on the just on yeah. the edtech. Sorry to interrupt you, but but what are yeah. we talking here? Are we talking uh, braille machines or perhaps audio text? I, I, I mean, it depends on the the context, right? And the and the country. And... Absolutely, and that that was fascinating because uh, as part of our literature review we had to come up with a list of uh, search terms okay so we had a list of search terms for impairment disability uh, or functioning and then we had to think about the different types of ed tech or technology that we were that we wish to find out about so in terms of educational technology we, we were pretty open to the use of laptops tablets pcs uh, but then when we were looking more at specific impairments, so for speech and language difficulties, there's an area called AAC, um, Augmentative and Alternative Communication. So there's a whole set of devices around that. For vision impairment, which you just mentioned, the, there's Braille note takers, there's Braille machines, Perkins Braillers. When it comes to uh, deaf or hard of hearing, we're talking about things like cochlear implant to the use of apps that teach sign language on uh, Android phones. So we kept it very open, what we looked at. We looked at EdTech as a sort of catch-all, but within that, we also talked about assistive technology. So the assistive technology is that piece of kit that is additional to the sort of mainframe, the mainstream stuff that, that's available. So uh, a very simple example is a laptop that require, so if a blind person, a child is using a laptop or a, or, or a tablet, uh, in order to, to access it, they would need something called a screen reader. So that's the piece of addition, the assistive or the adaptive technology that you, you, you sort of not, you add to the, to the mainframe. Um, so it, it also, we also looked at sort of low to medium tech. So it could be very simple thing like a crutch to um, use of a wheelchair. So it was a pretty broad area, which I think previously was often called ICT, so information communication technology. Um, in my time when I was teaching, we used to call it ICT, but now we're sort of more towards the ed tech rather than ICT. It's really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating world and it can be a, it can be a game changer, right? Good, a good bit of technology can can yeah. completely revolutionise how you teach a child with a disability or how someone with a disability learns. Absolutely, I mean it takes time. Again, it's back to this sort of preparation, but it, it's it's not a quick fix solution, you know. The and and I'm doing some work at the moment with the uh, World Bank Inclusive Education Initiative, uh, 
work developing these knowledge products and uh, one of them is around assessment of children and assessment of children's needs in relation to technology and there are some really useful checklists and I highlighted some of them uh, which are being developed in the global north uh, one is in Wisconsin University but they could be adapted and used and I think having some really useful checklists about um, specific questions that you ask a child or ask their parents in terms of environment, uh, in terms of suitability, whether it's when it's most appropriate to use it. Um, could the, could the, the technology follow the child, uh, not just in the classroom, but into the, into the home where they could do their homework and do other tasks? There's so much we need to learn it's a bit of a Pandora's box. There's so much that we don't know about it, but there's um, there's some great initiatives. Um, and uh, I've been doing this work with the Global Disability Innovation Hub at uh, University College London. And they're what they, they've, their center has been accredited by the WHO. And they're doing some fantastic work on adaptation of technology. And so I've really enjoyed working with these engineers, experts on, on this area as an educator and, and giving them a sort of insight into the world of education on how certain, certain types of technology would work and others are just completely inappropriate in a classroom situation. It's an exciting area which I think is growing. And, you know, the EdTech Hub, for example, is doing some really interesting reports. We, I've also done some, some reports on uh, technology for deaf and hard of hearing uh, on the EdTech Hub as well. So there's some yeah. really great initiatives at the moment. Well, they, uh, sound, they sound super interesting. I'd love, to, I'd love to have a look at them. If you send the, the links to them, I can put them in the show notes. I want to wrap up quite soon. Um, and that got me thinking... Where next for this? I mean, technology is being used more and more in our in our daily lives. How does that translate to the world of education? Are we seeing a greater use of technology in in schools all over the world? I suppose there's obviously more opportunity for the use of high tech assistive technologies in in richer countries or more developed countries for obvious reasons. Are you seeing that start to balance out a bit with the use of Android phones, or even dumb phones, as they're called, like like my old Nokia thirty three ten. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts for the the future of ed tech and education. Yeah, no, I I, I I'm really um, really optimistic about the um, the way we're looking, in spite of the the small amount of literature we found. Uh, on the use of uh, technology for, for learners with disabilities, what we did find was uh, was the real flourishing of uh, mobile technology, um, particularly Android phones, and how we can use them in really creative ways. And I think you know portable devices. I think investing in apps and and uh, mobile phones really has additional benefits for 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 learners with disabilities. As long as the investment is sustainable, um, and you know that we don't want to create um, a situation where we install apps uh, which are not being updated, which are which don't have the best um, technical support, because raising expectations amongst teachers and children it 
can and 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 not being able to fulfill those expectations it, it i'd rather we didn't introduce anything um because we don't want a situation of uh, multiple failures and and despondency what's exciting is is the development of uh, tablets and pc uh, of, of mobile technology so i think apps are incredibly important around cost there's still there is still there's still major issues around the cost of assistive technology but it's what what's really um again gratifying is is that within countries they are looking at local solutions to developing technology at a much lower rate at lower cost than importing from high income countries many of these countries have the resources we we can provide training and this is something that the gdr gdi hub is doing extensively and i think that's the real move forward is is to really invest in local solutions there's a real momentum and um and i think again it needs a, a government support donor support to to really get this off the ground but we really need to look at sustainable solutions and not look at not to to have short term projects with limited um budgets because as you know richard the, these these projects when you talk about technology and investment in in sophisticated uh, technology or sustainable technology we do need to invest reasonable amounts of uh, funds so uh yeah it it's important to keep that keep the need but lastly is helping teachers understand to at the end of the day in terms of inclusive education when we talk about helping teachers to manage large classes of children if there's ways of in integrating including technology to to reduce that sort of burden load on the teacher even sort of electronically keeping notes uh, about the ch- about children checklists etc there's so much that can be done that can be that can offload a lot of administrative tasks that teachers have to do in terms of um keeping records on children there's a lot we can do but we need the right people in 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 the space to do it well inspiring words i look forward to following this myself in the in the years to come the optimism is there the potential is certainly there i look forward to seeing what comes of it uh paul lynch thank you so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> great um i will uh, i'll speak to you very soon i'm sure that was dr paul lynch my thanks to him for joining me today and thank you for listening if you want to find out more about paul's research check out the links in the show notes just to help you get through the middle of the week a new episode of golf four will be released every wednesday why not subscribe and share it with your friends goodbye